Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about just about everything going on with D&D. If you like this show and you want to help me out, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive content, some of which we're going to look at today. And most importantly, you help me put on shows like this. So for the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you very much for your support. So yeah, we got a few interesting topics to talk about today. Let's see. Let's jump right in. So, yeah, I had a kind of a big week. I had back-to-back Thursday and Friday appearances on both the D&D Beyond stream and talking with Matt Colville at MCDM about an article that I did for Arcadia Issue 6 called The Grim Accord. Both of them went really well. I was very, you know, I was nervous about both of them. They were they have big audiences and uh, I didn't throw up on camera, so that was good. Yeah, so they have I have links to both of those. The D&D Beyond stream is currently on Twitch. But they are going to split it up into two pieces and put it up on YouTube. The so that'll be that'll be cool. And in the D and D Beyond one, we we talked about two things. One is they want to talk about lazy dungeon mastering, which of course I'm happy to talk about as much as anybody wants to talk about it. Hey, look, both cats have come in, and plus one for not vomiting. Yep. So and then the second half we talked about the encounter builder, and my only faux pas was that I kind of combined the encounter builder and the combat tracker into sort of one thing because they're so well interconnected. And I, I talked about how the encounter builder kind of went from a tool I didn't use at all to one that I use regularly, mostly because now there is shared dice rolling inside the game log. You can you can roll dice for monsters and you can share those dice rolls with your players and your players' dice rolls can be shared back and forth. And that works really well. So yeah, it was fun talking about fun talking about both of those things. And then I had a wonderful conversation with Matt Colville. I did not know that Matt knew about the stuff I had done in fourth edition days. Matt, Matt definitely has his head around fourth edition these days, which is interesting because I kind of don't. And we had a really interesting conversation about that in which both Matt and James make fun of the fact that I am no longer a big supporter of 4E and yet have the name Sly Flourish as my, my nom de plume, which I say, yep, that's all true. All, all these things are true. So we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about Dwarven Forge and we talked about you know, lots of 4E stuff. And then, of course, we talked about my article, The Grim Accord, in Arcadia Issue 6, which you can get on the MCDM uh, Patreon. And it's a really good Patreon. You get a lot of value for your for your money there. So can I explain Sly Flourish? Yes. In the fourth edition of D&D, rogues had a power called Sly Flourish. And Sly Flourish was a rogue move in which you use charisma as your attack and damage bonus instead of dexterity. So yeah, it was, it was a, I think it was what they call an at-will power, essentially a main power called uh, Sly Flourish. And I grabbed that name because I wanted a good domain name, and that was a domain name that was available. And I was going to be writing about fourth edition D&D, so that's what I grabbed. And now here we are. So, and they have yet to put a Sly Flourish into 5th edition. I wonder why not. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it was really, really fun talking to, to, to Matt and to James about stuff. And it was really kind of fun to watch James kind of just sitting back and, and, and having Matt and I talk about things. I, I enjoyed that. So that was a really good conversation. And again, I didn't throw up, so it was really good. That is available on YouTube. I will have the links in the show notes. And uh, you, can, you, can, you can view it and enjoy it. So I want to talk about, I, I had mentioned that patrons of Sly Flourish get access to a lot of exclusive stuff. And I uh, wanted to show off a few that I worked on this past week. So patrons of Sly Flourish get access to, I think, th- two, at least two, I don't know if there's a third, exclusive adventures, short adventures that you can run that I, that I wrote up. But also they get access to two big PDFs, one called Uncovered Secrets and one called Adventure Generators. And they're both pretty big, meaty documents now. They are, yeah, so the Adventure Generators are 23 pages. 
The Uncovered Secrets are 30 pages. So that's 53 pages of content that you get for signing up for the, that you get for signing up for the Patreon. And I added, I, I, I usually add like a couple a month, right? And I think I didn't do it for the previous month because I was working on bundling this stuff up and editing and getting it ready for the Kickstarter that we're going to launch later this year. We're actually going to launch it probably in a couple months, three months, three months, I think. I think that's right. No, yeah, two months, right? Just about, something. And we're going to be bundling this together, which means I'm editing the existing ones and trying to make sure that all of the ones that I want to be in the book are going to be in the book instead of kind of making new ones. But then I did sit back and say, I want to make some new ones. And, and the, the genesis for these, so there's, there's four that we're going to talk about today. Improvising legendary monsters, a villain generator, a lost kingdoms generator, and a god generator. And three of the four of these, the, the villain generator, the lost kingdom generator, and the god generator, all came from the idea of where do secrets come from? So one of the generators that is in here is sort of a, a, a secret prompts, right? There's one for a secret and clue prompts. And I was thinking that like a lot of times I take a published setting and I draw secrets and clues out of the published setting. So like I ran a game last night for a friend of mine and the we use Eberron and, and we were particularly using the nations of Arganesson and the nation of Sarlona. So I took a lot of lore from Arganesson and Sarlona and kind of draped that into the secrets and clues for the game. And they discovered a lot about Arganesson and Sarlona as they played. But I was like, well, for a homebrew game, you know, how do you get that kind of stuff? And so typically I've been focusing secrets and clues about the here and now. What are the adventure locations? Who are the NPCs that you're dealing with? What are the monsters that you have to fight? What treasure do you gain? The things that you're going to deal with right now. But then I was like, well, what about the the lore? What about the the backdrop and the the wrapping and the 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 stuff that sort of surrounds it? How can I help DMs with that? And that's where villain generators, lost kingdom generators, and god generators came from. So we're, we'll we'll take a look at those first. These are under the adventure generators. I have to go find them. Uh, I'm not going to go through this whole document. There's lots of different stuff. You can kind of see all the different things I've got in here. Ex exploration, wilderness, underground. Lo so here's the Lost Kingdom generator. What I, what I do when I, generate a, when I put together a generator like this is I try to think about, like, what are the five variables, five to six variables that can help somebody build one of these things, whatever this thing is. So if you're building a Lost Kingdom, what are sort of the five main variables that you can use to generate a Lost Kingdom? And so we have names, right? And I just said... It's, it's not a lot of names. It's only 20 names, but 20 names is probably enough. Like how many times are you going to use this table to generate a Lost Kingdom? Probably not more than 20, right? So I think 20 names are probably good. So I came up with 20 different names. You could sort of randomly generate a name for your kingdom. Uh, how was it ruled, right? Who ruled it? Was it a majocracy, a theocracy? Did a demon lord rule it? Did an elected senate, you know, rule it? How was it, how was this Lost Kingdom conducted? And a lot of these, you can sort of choose which one you want. You can roll, right? And rolling is always cool, but you can also sort of choose, if you have a general idea, you can kind of pick something that's that's there. What are the remnants? What what exists? These are lost kingdoms. They're kingdoms that aren't around anymore. So what, where, you know, what things have they left behind? And you might roll a couple of times on this list, right? You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to roll just once. So massive statues, aqueducts, I think I have massive aqueducts and massive statues, you know, charred battlefields, songs of old, crashed earth moats, dead war machines, right? All sorts of different things that you can, that you can, that you can do here. Then what catastrophic event caused the kingdom to become lost, right? Was it a civil war? Was it a demonic invasion? Was it a falling meteor or vast sinkholes, right? Like what, what are those, 
What are the various catastrophic events that can occur? Uh, and then what customs and legacies uh, were left behind by this kingdom? You know, is there, are there strange deities or, or you know, heavily, being heavily tattooed? Live, you know, what were the customs they had? Live burials, stoic magic, you know, tamed monsters, dragon worship. You know, so these are like the things that sort of set that kingdom apart from, from sort of other places. And they're generally, they, they kind of sway towards the dark, right? They, they're, they're kind of, these lost kingdoms are often kingdoms that are sort of dark. Now, another trick with this lost kingdom is you can also decide like, well, whose kingdom was it? right? It's not one of the tables here because earlier on we have sort of these core adventure tables and you could roll an origin, right? And you could decide like, what was the origin of that kingdom and roll on this D20 list and make it like, what if it was a lycanthropy or, you know, a kingdom that was built on constructs or one, an orcish kingdom, right? So you can use this origin table for lots and lots of different things that exist inside the rest of this generator. And that's why it doesn't exist in, in the, in the lost kingdoms, the lost kingdoms one. So that was a that was one of the ones we built. I, I built this past this past month. And then we have the God generator. So the God generator is a little different than uh, the other ones. It's not uh, it's not a five part thing. I tried to pick, you know, and here we got sort of different 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 things that kind of create a God, right? And this is sort of like a lost God. This is when you're down in a tomb and you want to generate like a deity that they're worshiping. I could have used this yesterday and I, I didn't because I'm dumb. So they have like domains, like what are the domains? And we have sort of good and neutral domains and then evil domains. So that way you can roll on two different lists depending on the kind of, you know, the kind of God you want. And a lot of times they are, one is the opposite of the other. The sea over here, the wrathful sea, knowledge and the forbidden, entertainment and lies, you know, fire and wildfire, peace and hell, order and chaos, right? So there, a lot of times they're trying to be like opposites of these. What are the holy symbols that exist? And, and a lot of times you want to mix this iconography with the domain, so it might be crossed branches, but if you have crossed branches and storms, you know, it might be, you know, wrecked branches sitting in, in a roiling sea or something like that. You know, if you have greed in a droplet, maybe it's a droplet of blood, something like that. So you can use these. These aren't intended to be used on their own. It's intended that you kind of mix these tables together to generate an interesting holy symbol for, for this new god. And then we have a name generator, and it's like two, two tables. So you might make, you know, Mirene, Mircene or, or Fermir or Caliban, right? You can sort of generate a name from both of these together. I built a little quick generator using perchance to see, like, does this work? And, and it kind of works, right? So you'll notice that I have the cult generator right below that. And, it, you know, same, same way of like generating cults. But like you can generate some gods and then generate cults that worship the god right after it. And the cults have all kinds of things. The cult, the cult generator is something that I put in a, a, a month or so ago. So, yeah, and we'll to start. So this is Uncovered Secrets. So what's the difference between these two? Adventure generators are there to help you build adventures in your campaigns. They're there to help inspire you to generate your own uh, adventures in your own campaigns, right? They're, they're just piles and random tables, random lists and themes and ideas that you can use to just sort of stir your own head around and come up with ideas. Uncovered Secrets are things that are intended specifically to help help you run your 5e games easier, right? They are they are tips and tricks for running easier 5e games, more easier story-focused 5e games. And all, both of these are like one-page things. The intent is that each page has like one thing. So there's one page with tools for improvisation. Like you could just grab this page and you got a lot going on. Building, maintaining a group, session zero checklist, RPG safety tools, options for first level play, spiral campaign development, strong starts, prompts for secrets and clues, building situations, quick NPC generator, quest templates, understanding exploration. This is different than the others, but this is that idea of like, 
And actually, I needed this in last Sunday's game. So I'll talk a little bit about this when I'm, when I'm talking about our Frostmaiden game. The idea behind improvised legendary monsters is that, you know, building monsters, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time building one-off monsters for my game. And I, I want to help DMs not have to spend a lot of time building one-off monsters for, for D&D games. I want people to be able to quickly build a monster, even on the fly. Like, what if I give you the tool so that on the fly, you can build an interesting monster? And what if you want to take a monster like an assassin and turn them into a legendary assassin, right? Which I kind of want to do last time. So there's some, there's some dirty tricks you can do right up front that I think are pretty obvious. One is you give them legendary resistances, right? So that, that one is really straightforward. Uh, you might also give them things like advantage against magical effects, advantage against immunity, turn undead, and advantage from making concentration checks. You might add those two if it makes sense that they would have them. Would they be a warcaster? Do they have a reason why they'd be resistant to magical effects? Do they have a reason why they would be resistant to turn undead or immune to turn undead? If it's a solo undead thing, I think it should be immune to turn. I don't think you'd be able to turn a solo undead. Then legendary actions is a little bit trickier, but I think the idea is pretty straightforward, right? Give, a, give your legendary monster. You have, a, you have a normal monster, like let's take an assassin, right? And you want to make a legendary assassin. So obviously you take your legendary resistance and throw it on your assassin. Now they can resist stuff. You want to give them legendary actions. So you throw that on the assassin. For an assassin, that would be really dangerous because of that poison. So you might say they get those extra attacks. They don't get poison. Maybe they get sneak. So they get three legendary actions, right? And typically a legendary action does two things. One is it gives them one melee one attack right of one one regular attack not an attack action not multiple attacks but like one single attack and it lets them essentially move without provoking right and and or something like that for a wizard maybe they teleport for an assassin maybe they're able to use their cunning action as a legendary action right so they can they can disappear or they can disengage and then move and then you know something like that so you want to give them mobility right this is something that matt colville and i talked about not the name drop but when i was doing my my the 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 arcadia 6 talk we talked about the action-oriented monsters that, that Matt Colville talks about. And we broke it down. He, he had broken it down, and I broke it down even further to maneuver, escape, and explode, right? To, you know, position yourself, escape, and explode. And I really... So, you know, I think you can do that with, like, legendary actions. You can certainly do your escape. Or you can do your maneuver and escape with, like, moving without provoking. And then your explode is do something really big. So then you add your legendary actions. In this case, you do with the assassin. I probably wouldn't let the assassin's poison happen every turn. I would probably just do a regular attack. Uh, tweak hit points. Your boss monster is going to get beat up really heavily, so you probably want to give them more hit points. Uh, doubling hit points is an easy way to, to, to increase their hit points. Damage. You might want to add damage. For like an assassin, you probably want to lower the damage because their assassin is meant to hit once and hit really hard, and if you're letting them attack multiple times a turn with that like 76 poison, it would just rip characters to shreds so you probably want to lower damage for an assassin but many other creatures you want to increase their damage and you can do so by adding some elemental damage a white might inflict an extra 2d6 necrotic damage then there's a bunch of spell-like effects that you can give legendary monsters <clears throat> there's a bunch of spell-like effects and some of these are i broke these down into three categories persistent threats escape and defense and burst right and a persistent threat is something like spirit weapon or spiritual guardians or fire shield where they're doing a lot of damage sort of in a passive way. Like, you know, you have a monster, they have spirit guardians going on around them. Anybody that's starting within 20 feet has to take 3d8 damage, right? That really powerful move. These are all big, powerful things. Spirit weapon means as a bonus action, they're hitting people in the back, right? So that can work. Fire shield, every time they're getting hit, they're doing damage back. 
those are really good persistent threat spells. I tried to pick like three big ones that really have a big effect. Escape and defense are your, how do they protect themselves? Shield, darkness, misty step, and greater invisibility are all ways for them to defend themselves, right? You can imagine an assassin that has greater invisibility on really, really powerful. Burst damage is their explosion. What can they do that just hits everybody and hurts? And it, you know, start off simple with like firebolt and scorching ray, shatter, lightning bolt, and fireball. Big spells that they can cast. Maybe they can do those as legendary actions. So they're throwing a bunch. And then of course, any any good boss needs minions. So what minions can you throw into it? So that's like a quick guide. This is the first draft, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna keep working on this one. I don't know if it's fully baked yet. I'm gonna keep working on this one. But I think it's like these are nice tools you can keep in your back pocket. And could you? On the fly, my, my goal is that you can, during the game, build a legendary monster, right? So I think that that would be, that that would be really cool. We'll talk about the villain generator next time, I think, next week. And, and any other, if I come up with any others in the next week, they will be there. So for the patrons of Sly Flourish, this is available to you right now. You can get those three, uh, those three adventure generators along with all of the other stuff in these books. Yeah, so Devin Thunderstrike said a table of contents or index would really help. I know it would. It's hard because I'm kind of piecing this whole thing together as I go and the pages are moving around a lot. So it's hard for me to build a table of contents. But now that it's hitting like 30 pages, I probably need to do one. So you you were right and I will do that. I will I will create a table of contents. I will create a table of contents for both of these for both of these pages. They don't even have page numbers. Right? That's that's yeah, it's really hard. The problem is the way I generate these, it's not one Word document. It's 30 Word documents. So, you know, that's really tough. Now, what I will say is when it becomes a book, when all of this stuff is put together into the Lazy DMs Companion, not all of it, there's going to be a few in here that are exclusive to patrons. But the, when I put this together into Uncovered Secrets, that, of course, will have a table of contents. That is going to be a, a big, a big, beautiful, uh, big, beautiful document. Here is the sneak preview for the sample of the Lazy DMs Companion. This is the book that we're going to be kickstarting in a couple of months. Uh, I'm partnering with Nord Games to talk about it. And we have a 17-page sample. We've got some artwork we're adding into these. So the blank spots are for, are for artwork. But this is going to be well-formatted, well-edited, uh, cleaned-up version of much of the stuff that you see inside, inside the Companion, inside the Uncovered Secrets and Adventure Generators. So it, won't, it probably won't have all of it, but it will have a lot of it. There's a few that will continue to be exclusive for patrons. But you can see, and it is in the format of the Lazy DM workbook. So the Lazy DM workbook and the Lazy DM companion are going to sit side by side. And I am working with, I'm going to show off the last, the last page here, one cool thing that was added uh, that I will be releasing to patrons also uh, this week. Patrons have gotten access to this early. Everybody will have access when we launch the Kickstarter. Uh, and it will be free. And that is the first of the companion maps. So one of the ideas that I want to put in this book is a number of general purpose maps. So the Lazy DM workbook has 10 maps for what I like to refer to as lazy, lazy or, or, or mundane encounters, like lazy encounters or lazy locations, right? And the idea is like sewers and castles and docks and everything like that. But in this book, what I want to do is create a few maps that don't even define themselves by that and can be used for three or four different purposes. So I, I've been working with Daniel Walthall. This is the first map that I got back from Daniel Walthall for creating a, a, a map 
that you can use for a bunch of different things. So you can, you know, you could sort of change this into crypts. You can change this into un the, the, the underneath of a castle. It could be a temple. It could be cellars beneath an inn. It could be, you know, caves and caverns. It can be lots of different things. So you can use this one map and use it in a lot of different ways. And the digital version of this will of course have a VTT compatible version, but also a digital version that you can then flip and rotate in different ways with just by flipping and rotating, it's not anything special, but you can flip and rotate it and kind of come up with an entirely different layout for the map and you can use it more than once. And I really I really like the idea of sort of, we, we wanna make sure like each room has interesting things that you can tie into, but you can of course reflavor the things that are in these rooms to change them into all kinds of different things. So that's the first map, not even the patrons have seen this yet, but you will today. I will make sure that the this latest version of the latest version of it is going to be is going to be put in there. Uh, a companion map that can easily bolt on or around the fantastic layers would be awesome. That's my only beef with fantastic layers. The location's really small. Yeah, the, the, the fantastic layers are are small because they are not adventures, right? So yes, the intent with the fantastic layers is that you can bolt it onto lots of different things. I, I I could take a look and see if you can bolt these onto other ones. But yeah, the intent of a layer was to be the boss fight, right? It's to be the the end the end point. So each one is supposed to be like three or four rooms. They're they're not intended to be entire adventures, which is why there's 24 of them. And 24, 23, 23 of them in a big book instead of like 10. Anyway, so yeah, the, the maps, I think what, I think it'll be really cool. I don't know how many we're going to do, but I think that, you know, probably four, four to six, you know, four to six of these that we will have. And they're going to be, some of them are going to be bigger in scope. So we're going to have like a village, right? I want to do like a village in a forest so that we're breaking away from just dungeons, right? I think the, the ones in, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to increase the resolution, increase the scale so that we can do some bigger locations, things that you could use. So like if you're running a seven samurai adventure, here's a village map that you can use for seven samurai, right? Regardless of like all the other elements you have. So that is the intent. So that is, I think we have beaten that topic to death, the previews. The ne next time, I can't, I don't know where my villain generator went, but next time we'll talk about villain generators. So yes, important things. If you want access to this stuff, you can get it right away by joining my Patreon, patreon.com slash lifeflourish. Two bucks, two bucks a month gets you access to all of this. You get lots of preview videos, lots of different stuff, uh, but you get access to this and you'll get access to the preview stuff from the Kickstarter. So if you're interested in seeing that kind of coming in, being a patron right now gets you access early and then joining the Kickstarter gets access to everything else. The Kickstarter is going to be in the uh, beginning of October, right at the end of September, and it's going to be throughout October. And we're going to be promoting it heavily during the month of September. I think that, yeah, that's right. So month of, yeah, month of September. We're, we're getting all the materials ready. I'm getting artwork, I'm getting maps, I'm getting all the stuff together to, to, to be able to launch the Kickstarter. And then we're gonna, we're gonna preview it heavily in September and then launch throughout October. So I'm very excited for that. And meanwhile, we're hammering with the book. Like I'm going through all the edits in the main book too. So it's gonna be really cool. All right, so let's talk about some other people's stuff. So I typically don't talk about Kobold Press, not because I don't love them. I think I probably do talk about them a lot. But I don't talk about them. I, they weren't kind of the things I wanted to preview typically because Cobalt Press doesn't need my help. They're a huge imprint. They are the number one third-party publisher for D&D, I think. I think that's true. I'm pretty sure that's true. But I did, I used something that I've had around for a long time and I've used it a lot in my last few games. And I wanted to talk about that. And then I just got a new one called Scarlet Citadel. So I wanted to talk about both of these. So Scarlet Citadel was a Kickstarter that Kobold Press ran 
uh, a while back. I don't know, was it late last year? Something like that. And Scarlet Citadel is a single large dungeon delving adventure, old school dungeon delving adventure written by a longtime veteran in this industry, Steve Winter. Steve Winter has been writing about D&D 30 years, I think. He's been working in TSR. Both he and his wife had worked at TSR. His wife was worked on, on Dark Sun, was one of the co-creators of Dark Sun. And Steve has been an editor and working with Wolfgang Bauer at Kobo Press for a long time. And Steve, so Steve is the sole writer of this book. And I backed the Kickstarter and I, I backed the physical copy. So I got, I got the physical copy of the book. And it is a beautiful, well put together, dungeon delving adventure. It is intended for levels one to 10. And it primarily, it is very much, it, it, it harkens back to Temple of Elemental Evil, like the idea of the original Temple of Elemental Evil, the original Greyhawk, like Castle Greyhawk. This idea of like having a big town or a small town up above and then sort of a very deep dungeon beneath with lots of things going on. So while it has sort of that old school feel, it's got definitely modern, modern designs, beautiful full color art, beautiful full color maps, really excellent design. Mark Radel did the design of this, really excellent design. Sort of really, really cool looking, like here's a, here's a side view of all of the dungeons so you can kind of see. It actually, when I looked at the side view map, it reminded me a lot of Dark Souls, right? I loved like sort of the verticality of the game Dark Souls. And this one sort of had that idea of like the deeper you go, the more mysterious the stuff that you face. So it's really neat. It has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rooms. But what I really like about it, one of the things, so there's many things to love about this. You can buy the PDF, of course. But I think this is one where if you plan on running it, I would almost certainly buy not only the hardcover, but also the map pack. And I'll, I'll tell you why. But the hardcover book, for example, comes with a fold-out large map of the dungeon location, you know, the, the side view of the dungeons, and also the map of the town that exists there. And a really cool, like, two-page, just big enough, you know, small enough that, you know, it's easy to fold into the book and big enough that it'll be cool sitting out on your table. But what's really exciting, I got this all piled up stuff. What's really interesting is the map pack. So, and I had seen Paizo do this before with their mega dungeon. I forget what it's called. It was actually kind of, the dungeon was, a, the, the adventure was kind of a disaster for other reasons. But that one of the features that they had was that every level of the dungeon had a corresponding flip mat. And... When I ordered the Kickstarter for Scarlet Citadel, I backed with the maps in mind because I was like, oh, that's cool. They have poster maps for all these. And I expected paper poster maps. I didn't get paster, po paste, paster maps. I didn't get paper poster maps. I got dry erase, foldable dry erase poster maps of like every level of the dungeon, right? Huge poster size maps, two-sided for the light. You can't hear me because I'm far away from the mic right? But big ones, right? Big poster maps. And it comes with tons of them, right? Like just, there's like, I think there's 13 maps like this. They just keep coming. It's like a clown car. It's like a clown car of foldable maps, right? And, you know, every one of them is these big poster maps. They're full-sized, fully gridded, miniature, you know, miniature compatible maps, right? For these locations. So, this is kind of like, you know, I, 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 oh, and there's one other feature of this. So not only do they have these big poster maps, they have these cards, right? And the cards 
there are certain parts of the maps. Yes, they are piezo quality. These are these are as good as piezo flip maps. They are they are dry erasable, you know, really nice laminated maps. They're going to last forever, right? And parts of the chambers change when you're running the adventure. And they give you these small laminated cards that overlay on top of a map to show you how the room changed. So like an example is when the pool starts to get all bloody, you throw your bloody pool map on it and then it's all bloody. Uh, some parts will get submerged, you know, and you suddenly have the submersion map or the, the vats explode and the vat stuff gets all over the place. So you actually take, yeah, I think uh, I actually have that. So the example is in this map, you have this chamber here, right? with these three things and you go, oh, they blow up and you put this over the top of it. I think I flipped it the wrong way, right? You put this right over the top of it and now you can see that the vats exploded, right? Did that line up right? Yeah, right, right there, right? So really kind of cool how you can, like you, you, you overlay the overlays onto the poster map and it changes the dynamics of the poster map. So really, really cool. I'll be honest, I think this is a little over-engineered because these maps are so specific, it's like, you're not gonna use them a lot, right? Like, how often are you gonna use a poster map that's that specific? Now, you can keep these on hand and use them for lots of different things, and that's pretty cool, but I bet they could have gotten away with paper maps, right? That said, holy cow for quality. And so it reminds me, like, between, like, the the inside map, oh, it's got handouts, The hand, there, there are handouts inside the, the book for, for its due. So you got handouts, you got laminated maps, you got these map overlays, you've got the side view maps, you got the town maps. It's like getting a Beetle and Grimm box, right? It's like getting a silver edition Beetle and Grimm box. It really feels like you get a lot of material for this. And it doesn't hurt that it's a pretty cool adventure, right? So one of the things that I found particularly interested, interesting about this adventure, A, it's written by one guy, or mostly written by one guy, B, that guy's been writing D&D stuff for 30 years, so he knows what's good and what's bad in an adventure, right? There's not a lot of like trying to mix together a bunch of writers together into one thing. And it tells you it's an opinionated adventure. It is a, it is a deadly dungeon delve, and it talks about what it's like to be in a deadly dungeon delve. And it, it describes that you're going to want to talk to your players about this beforehand. What I, what I you know, this, this to me was a good example of like, it feels like Rime of the Frostmaiden is also an opinionated adventure. It just doesn't tell you what the opinion is. And this is something I've been arguing with my friends and talking about with my wife over the past few days is like, because I'm, I'm kind of mad at Rime of the Frostmaiden, right? And what I'm mad about is, and, and what everybody tells me is like, well, of course, it's a sandbox adventure. It's not meant to have a lot of these points tied together. It's not meant to have a clear outline about how you go from point A to point B. And I'm like, that's great. Where does it say that? Right? It doesn't tell me how I'm supposed to use all the stuff it gives me. It's like, here are 13 quests for chapter one. It doesn't tell me how to use it. This book tells me how to use it. Right? I know what I'm getting into when I open this book. And maybe it's not exactly what my group wants. And I know, because I know how it runs, I know how I have to modify it. So I might say, I'm going to probably bump their levels up a couple so it's not quite as deadly. Right? So there, there are ways to do it. So I like the fact that it's an opinionated adventure. Anyway, in conclusion, I was really... You know, I'm, I've never been disappointed by a Kobold Press book that I've bought. And they are one of the few Kickstarters where I always get the physical version because I know that the physical quality is going to be so good, it's going to be worth it. And this time, it even broke away my expectations even further, right? Like it was when I got it. And I, a lot of times when I know a Kickstarter is good is when I open the box and I'm like, how much did I pay? Right. Like I have to go back to the Kickstarter. Like, did I pay $250 for this? Because this feels like $250 worth of stuff. Right. So I have to go back 
and and look. So Scarlet Citadel in hardcover. Whoops, what the hell happened? You can get the hardcover and PDF of Scarlet Citadel. It looks like do they have? Do they sell it together? I don't know if they sell it together. That'd be kind of a bummer if they spend different ones. But I would recommend the, the the map folio, 13 poster maps and 20 overlays for 40 bucks is a really good deal. That is a really good deal. So I would, you know, it, yeah, it looks like it would be about a hundred bucks to get the hardcover version, the PDF and the map folio and stuff. And I would, oh, it looks like the map pack is also separate. That's kind of a bummer. Oh yeah. So 45 bucks. So $5 more to get the hardcover and the PDF. And that's really good. looks like you'd have to get the JPEG separate if you want to have digital versions, you know, and, and then get the physical versions too. So maybe you decide whether or not you're going to be playing it in person or you're going to be playing it online. Uh, I was really happy that I backed the digital and, and physical versions on the Kickstarter because I'm sure it was less money than that. And I got all of it. I have digital versions and physical versions, so I'm ready to run it lots of different ways. Love it. Really, really happy with this book. Really excited. I hope to run it. I don't know when. It's possible that if I read Witchlight and Witchlight does not does not gel with me, I might try to run this instead. So really, really good. So that that is Scarlet Citadel. So the other thing I'll just talk about quickly is Tome of Beast 2. Tome of Beast 2 is a massive book of monsters that Cobalt Press put out a year ago. Full disclaimer, I have a monster in here. So, you know, I'm definitely biased towards it. But what I notice is I use this book in a similar way to how I used the Arcana of the Ancients books that Monty Cook put out for D&D in that I picked a location and I filled it with only monsters from this. And it really shook up the players. Like they, they were not used to the things they were fighting. They were not used to the stuff that they were facing. They were a lot harder than they expected because they, Tome of Beast monsters do way more damage than typical 5e monsters do. Uh, really, really cool, cool book. So I, I, I highly, I highly recommend Tome of Beast 2. It is a great book. What monster? Mine was the, what's it called? Oh, it was early on. And I forget the name of it. I forget the name of it. Oh, I should know. The, I think it's the Dreadwalker Excavator, page 129. I think that guy's mine. Yeah. The Dreadwalker Excavator, which is like an ancient construct spider that's slowly excavating ancient ruins down like either beneath the sea or anything like that. And uh, secret secret clue, I actually took the idea, the inspiration from this monster came from my father's book, Illuminatus. My dad wrote the book Illuminatus. And in there, there are spider robots that fight off the yellow submarine as they are lurking around the great eye of the pyramid. And uh, so I was like, I want to make a monster for that. And I did. And it's called the Dreadwalker Excavator. It is a, it's one page 129. It is a challenge rating five, cool spider construct that fires laser beams. So I really dig the Tome of Beasts. I love that. I've been using a lot of the monsters for them. I like them a lot. And I highly recommend if you, if you want to have a third party monster book that you want to use, I highly suggest uh, Tome of Beast 2. So I kind of got in started late on this. I actually just backed it today. And it's one of these like backing by inertia where it's like, well, it seems like everyone else backed it. I guess I should too. And that is the last Airbender Kickstarter. This was kind of big news. I, I have a feeling this could be the biggest RPG Kickstarter that's ever been launched. If 30, almost 31,000 backers, $3.7 million. And I can tell when a Kickstarter is getting really big, when my old childhood friend and I talk and he says, Hey, have you backed that Kickstarter? And I was like, 
how do you know about this? And I don't. And, and so he's a, a last airbender guy. I'm not, I, I don't really know anything about the, the, the lore or anything. It's just not, you know, it's one of those things I haven't gone into, but what he was like, what does powered by the apocalypse mean? And I was like, Oh, well, let me tell you, I know about powered by the apocalypse. So it's a powered by the apocalypse based RPG, which I think is very interesting. And I have a feeling I, I did the PDF version for 20 bucks, which seems reasonable. I get all the PDFs of all the digital rewards for $20. That seems very, very reasonable. And I'm just interested to see what they do with the rules. I have a feeling it's going to be a great big RPG. And so it will be worth me understanding how that is put together. And 20 bucks is a pretty low price to pay for it. But I thought it was very interesting of like, is this going to be a mainstream RPG? You know, I don't think there's anything that will eclipse D&D, certainly not over time. But this one might spike higher than D&D for the, did you pay your dad's royalties? Well, unfortunately, my father passed away long ago. So the royalties would come back to me anyway. So no, I don't have to pay royalties. So yeah, it, it's interesting how big this could get, particularly because it's only 25 days. It's only been like five days in. It's got 25 days to go, which means this is probably this amount here, that, or certainly the number of backers and the amount is half of what it would probably get. I bet this is less than half. So this could probably be an $8 million Kickstarter. And I don't know how big, I don't know how big, RPG Kickstarters have gotten. I guess like the next biggest one would be like the Critical Role, the Critical Role Kickstarter might have gotten that big. So they did 11 million. So they're probably not going to eclipse 11 million for the Critical Role. But Critical Role Kickstarter was actually for the animated special, not for an RPG. So it is an RPG related, it's an RPG related Kickstarter. But I wonder what like the biggest RPG related Kickstarters are. So anyway, I found that to be very interesting. I think it's interesting that they picked sort of an indie, uh, a very indie story focused basis to build it on, which means that this could, this will very likely be the biggest independent RPG, maybe, or it'll be the biggest Powered by the Apocalypse game, right? Like if you think about Powered by the Apocalypse, I think that powers Blades in the Dark and Monster of the Week and Dungeon World and obviously Apocalypse World and other things. But I think it will be interesting to see how big this one is as a power. Will this bring PBDA, powered by the PBTA? Will this bring PBTA higher up in the realm of like commonly used RPG engines? I like Powered by the Apocalypse a lot. It's kind of interesting. So yeah, so board games are a different story. The question is RPGs. Like what's the biggest, what's the biggest Kickstarter that, launched an ARP, a role-playing game, right? I mean, this is way bigger than Numenera. Numenera was huge. So very interested to see what this is going to be like. And I backed it, 20 bucks. You know, we'll, 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 we'll take a look. And I feel very like out of the loop on this one because like I'm not a Last Airbender guy. But I know what PBDA is. PBTA. Yeah, I think it will. I, think, I don't think there's any way this won't expand the awareness of PBTA. So I kind of wish that there was like an SRD for PBTA, not, not because I think the rules are, are, are open, right? I don't think there's any sort of licensing for them, but it'd be cool if there was like a PBTA core set of documents, like here's how to make a PBTA game, right? And then wrap your stuff around it. I think a lot of games kind of take those core ideas and core rules and then build off of them in whatever way makes sense for the RPG, which makes perfect sense. So another piece of news that happened this, this past week is that D&D Beyond announced that they are no longer going to host Unearthed Arcana content. For a while, D&D Beyond would, as, as UA content would become, would be released in the public, they would incorporate it into D&D Beyond and you could try it out as a D&D Beyond uh, subscriber. And they decided not to. And if you, if you look at this, the reason is there's probably a good reason why they didn't. 
And that good reason is that is Strixhaven. So Strixhaven, Strixhaven had some radical ideas for characters, partic- the, the, the biggest of which I think is that they had subclasses that multiple classes could choose. And that was an interesting idea. And people were kind of ruminating about it and talking about it and all that. A lot of people had different opinions on it. And then Watsi came out later and said, yeah, we're not doing that. Right? We decided we, the playtest didn't go well, we're not going to do it. And if I had to guess, I would say that the D&D Beyond developers probably started development on that one, realized how big a job it was going to be, twisted and turned in order to do it, and then had the rug pulled out underneath when they said, yeah, we're not doing that. So imagine, I, I bet you there was a big loss of development hours that occurred because of the Strixhaven UA. And did they, I, and can anybody tell me, did they actually put the Strixhaven UA into D&D Beyond? Was that actually in there? And did they have to take it back out again? I don't know. And so they did not. DM, DM Chromie says they did not. So... You can imagine they probably start, they outright said they're not going to add it. So they probably looked at it and said, we're not going to add it. And now they have made it. So maybe they didn't lose any, maybe I'm, maybe I'm misphrasing that they didn't lose any time on development, but they have since said, and it makes sense, right? Like if you've got a lot of programming hours, you're not going to put programming hours into content that's not going to make it. I bet you when them pulling the Strixhaven stuff back out again, made them say, yeah, we definitely don't want to be doing this. Like when they put out a published book and it's in paper, in bookstores, that's when we will add it to D&D Beyond. And that way they're not burning cycles on stuff that's churning and twisting and, and, and not, real, not real flexible. So that makes sense. This does lead to my big bugaboo with D&D Beyond, which I didn't bring on when I was on the D&D Beyond show because I don't want to poke people in the eyes on their own show, which is, are we over-reliant? Are we over-reliant on D&D Beyond? Are we getting even more overly reliant on D&D Beyond? And what does that mean for like third-party books, right? And I think we are certainly over-reliant on the player side. I Most of my players, all but one of them, maybe two, I think all but one, use D&D Beyond for their characters, right? They, and they and it works really well. Like it's the reason why. It's not like a monopoly exactly, you know, because it's just, it works really well. And there's lots of other ways you could kind of build characters and stuff like that. So there's nothing, they are not, you know, it isn't a monopoly on it because you can always go back to paper if you want. But like the more it's integrated, the more that like we use the dice roller inside D&D Beyond for stuff, you know, the more we get like locked into it. And then we get to the point where it's like, we don't want to use any content that isn't part of D&D Beyond. And D&D Beyond is only using quote unquote official content. Even though I'd argue, particularly with Tasha's, that like there's there's stuff that third party publishers are doing that is better than the stuff that Watsi is putting out. And yet that stuff isn't making it into D&D Beyond. So I, I, I worry about our over-reliance with D&D Beyond, right? And I'm, I'm happy to know that 5e can run just fine without D&D Beyond because we played for a long time before D&D Beyond existed. So I know we could play for a long time after D&D Beyond ceases to exist, if it ever ceases to exist. And, you know, right, Sour Cookie, Sour Cookie says, I moved away from D&D Beyond because their homebrew system was so complicated and we use a lot of third-party homemade stuff. Right, that's my point. It's like, it would be nice if it was easier to do the third-party stuff in D&D Beyond. I wish they would incorporate, like, even if just co- add in a couple publishers, right? Add in Cobalt Press. Like, Cobalt Press has a lot of good stuff. I don't know why they don't. And I, I guess they probably have some agreement with Watsi, except Watsi is letting their stuff be on multiple platforms. So it's really a weird relationship. It's a, it's, it's a weird relationship that Watsi has with Dean to Beyond because they have one thing from Nerdarchy. Yeah, but what is it? Is it a class? And they have the, of course, they have the, the thing from Matt Cobalt. So they can do it. It's just weird. So 
I do worry about our over-reliance on D&D Beyond. And let's pretend for a minute, let's do a disaster scenario and say that something happened in the licensing for D&D Beyond and Watsy kind of pulls the license from it, right? And D&D Beyond now has to host its own RPG stuff or something like that. And let's say you can't really use D&D Beyond. You can only use it for old stuff. You can't use new stuff, right? And that would cause a rift. Would that actually just overall reduce the number of people playing D&D because it's just too much of a hassle to do it any other way? I don't know. Yeah, but so I guess there's nothing really to do about it other than I think, you know, from time to time, it might be cool to play without using D&D Beyond, particularly if you're playing at a table or something like that. Online, it's hard to hard to use anything other than D&D Beyond because it's so good. So I thought that was I thought that was inter- interesting about UA, but also kind of gets to this. Are we being over reliant on D&D Beyond? It's something I it's something I think about worried about and eh, not so much think about. Yes, I think about it. So this past Wednesday, we got what, about 10 minutes left. Yeah, somebody says, I, I'd be out like 500 bucks, but we'd make it. Yeah, I'm not talking about like it completely disappearing, although that could happen. I'm just talking about like, what if it just be, got out of date? Or what if the development on stuff? We don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a different company than Wizards, and there's lots of weird politics that go on, lots of weird corporate stuff that goes on. So, yeah. So Wednesday, I ran an okay D&D game. Uh, I was running Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. I will talk about some of it in my in the next part of the show that the the next you know in the next 10 minutes when we switch over to talk about rhyme of the frost Maiden, i'll probably talk about it somewhat and we we went from it's unfortunate you know the problem you know the delta variant spike meant that we went we had two games in person and now we're back to online again because the area that i live there's it spiked back up again we are not considered a high risk area and i don't want to put anybody at risk so and i don't want to be at risk myself so we went back to online, which is a real bummer. Really pisses me off. Go get vaccinated. Please, people, just go get vaccinated. Stop and go get vaccinated. I don't want to hear about it. And I'm, I'm going to moderate if anybody starts getting into nonsense. So all I know is now I'm back to where we were months ago, right? And that sucks. So anyway, so we went back online, but I had built a big Dwarven Forge setup. So I'm like, well, damn it, I'm going to use my Dwarven Forge setup. And... I did. I set up a second camera and we put it on there and we had a really cool, fun boss fight. I used two monsters from Tomo Beast 2, which I talked about earlier, right? Here's Tomo Beast 2. And the two monsters I used were the scroll mummy, I think. It's under S. I think there's a scroll mummy in here. It's under mummy. Mummy comma scroll, right? There he is. Scroll mummy is a CR6 mummy. Really, really cool mummy. So I used that as my boss. And then I used uh, these really, really cool skeletons called Swordbreaker Skeletons, which are, they have a template for generating Swordbreaker Skeletons, and they have a Swordbreaker Skeleton veteran in here. I actually gave them extra arms so they could attack four times instead of the three that's listed here. And it was a really tough fight. People were dropping, people were scared. They had to deal with it. That worked really well. But I didn't really have a lot after that. And they, they the, the problem with the scenes, I realized later after the fact was that a lot of things happened, but the characters couldn't do anything with them. They, 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 all the things that happened, the characters weren't involved in. They just saw them happen. So like they saw what happened to Dazan at the end of it. I don't want to do any spoilers, so I'll talk about it in the other game. But they, I had sort of a scene that took place, but the scene didn't involve the characters. And then I had sort of an introduction of an NPC, and it kind of fell flat. It worked really well in my Sunday game, and it fell flat in my Wednesday game. And I think part of it is we were kind of tired. I, you know, I don't know. It was weird. So we had 
two players out and one player that was standing in. So that was a little different. And they didn't know, like, I think she was like, well, I have this character, but I don't know what kind of involvement my character should have because I know it's a one-off character. So there was a lot of like odd things. And it meant that I only ran sort of an okay game. But I think the real lesson that I learned is like in any scene, whenever you're thinking about a scene, you want to ask yourself, what are the options for the characters in this scene? What can they do? What can they physically do? Can they make decisions and choices? Can they change the outcome of what's going to occur? Is there something, are there multiple things for them to do in a scene? You don't want to set up scenes where the characters are, are sitting on a bench watching something take place, right? It gets, when you, when you have like NPCs dealing with other NPCs or NPCs that are going to do something and, you, and you're trying not to, you want that thing to happen. So you try to make sure that the characters can't get involved. That's a real bad thing to do. That like that you're taking away agency, right? You're, you're, you're removing their ability to do things. And so it's really important when you think about your scenes to think about what the characters can do in that scene, right? That's something that I kind of didn't do well in the Wednesday game. I think the battle was really cool and fun. Now, I think one issue with the battle was that particularly for melee characters, they were damned if they do, damned if they don't. So the scroll mummy had fire shield up and the sword breaker skeletons are resistant to slashing damage, right? So it meant I, can, I have a choice of doing half damage to those guys or doing full damage to this guy, but taking nine points of damage per hit every time I hit them, right? And it was like, you know, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. That's not really agency. Like there, there wasn't sort of a puzzle for them to solve. It would have been a puzzle if it's like, well, how do we get rid of the fire shield? Or how do we get around the fire shield? Or how can I switch weapon types so that I can fight those guys? You know, and it was like the, the sword breaker skeletons are, are an interesting monster because they are resistant to slashing and piercing, but they are vulnerable to thunder, right? And you can have them learn, oh, thunder damage works really well. But that means... Well, fighters don't have thunder damage, right? But that the the druid might with shatter. You know, people who have shatter definitely can do it. So for a group, it's kind of a fun puzzle. But for an individual character, it's like, well, I'm just screwed. Like in this battle, I'm doing half damage here or I'm going to kill myself hitting that guy, right? So that I think fell a little bit flat. I didn't sort of realize that till after it was done that it's like I really hosed melee characters in that in that fight. You want to give, you know, you want to give melee characters something to do. So, but then it also kind of fell flat because the two big scenes that I had after that was both of them were scenes that the characters weren't really involved in. I mean, they were, cause it's like they're being addressed and they were there. It wasn't like they weren't involved, but they didn't have, they didn't have choices to make and they didn't have things to do. And I think it fell flat for that reason. I ended up ending the game early because we were all kind of tired anyway. I think we had multiple people that had like really bad night sleep the night before. So we, it was fine to end at like 9, 15, 9, 9, 15 instead of 10 o'clock when we normally go. So yeah, DM Chromie says, I prefer the Dark Souls approach. The Dark Souls approach is what secrets and clues are about, right? Like I actually got it from, the, from, from Bloodborne more than anything else. But I love the idea of telling stories in tiny little bits right? This idea that like, as you're going, you see a certain thing, you'll learn a tiny little bit of story. You don't have a big cutscene where you lore dump stuff, which I tend to do. I did it last night in my game. I lore dump, huge lore dump, right? But it's like, it was a one-shot game and I needed to get the lore across. So, and it was a lot of lore. But generally the idea of secrets is that you have this one line piece of information they learn. They're traveling around in the game 
they learn and then they, they find, they find something, they do something. And from the results of their action, they learn that secret. It's like, a, you know, a, a risk reward approach, right? It's they do something, they learn something. And that approach works really well. It works well in Dark Souls. Dark Souls, you kind of are learning as you go, right? You're learning from the environment. You're learning from, it's not a bunch of people telling you a bunch of stuff. It's you saying like, why is this guy down here? How did he get here? What is this place? And why is it buried so deep, right? There's lots of lore that exists in the Souls, the, the Soulsborne, Soulsborne games that you only pick up from little one-line things. And I really, I really dig that approach. And I think it, I think it works really well for D&D. But yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about my experiences running a medium game, right? A game, it wasn't terrible. Like people didn't hate it, but it wasn't great, right? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't great. My game last night was pretty great, right? It was, uh, my, my, I asked my wife for a rating. She said, it has an 8.5, 8. 8. right? Which is pretty good. She's, she, she's a hard grader. One on the one on Wednesday, she's like, it was like a 6.5, right? And I'm like, okay, it was better than nothing. Like I, nobody was sad they showed up, right? Like they were still happy, but it was not great. And I think the reason why was that, that it, there wasn't enough things for the characters to do, but it's also kind of a strange game. Anyway, I want to share so the last thing I've got to talk about is kind of, you know, I don't know. It's not, not really the most useful conversation in the world, but I love, I was, I was talking about 13th Age. I mentioned 13th Age when I was talking about Coville on, on the MCDM show. And I've talked about 13th Age in the past. 13th Age is an RPG designed by Jonathan Tweet and Rob Hainso. Rob Hainso is a 4E, uh, was one of the developers of D&D 4th Edition. And Jonathan Tweet is one of the uh, developers of the D&D 3rd Edition. And they put together what they refer to as their love letter to D&D. It is a high power high curve uh, fantasy RPG with a big focus on story. And there's many elements to it that I just love. There are many elements I wish were in fifth edition. And then that got me to thinking like, what would a fifth edition version of 13th age look like? And some people say, well, that's what, why isn't 13th age just that, right? 13th age is a, dark, a D20 based RPG. Do you really need anything more than that? And I'm like, yeah, that's a good point, right? Maybe 13th Age is a 15th of 15. Oh, yeah, I forgot about this. So 13th Age is a humble bundle. Let's look that up because that I will give you something valuable. Humble bundle. Let's look for the 13th Age. Is it a humble bundle or? or? Here it is. It is. Oh, my God. It is such a crazy. It is such a crazy good deal. Look, at it raised 10 million or no, 10,000. I thought it was $10 million. Like, no, that's $10,000 for charity. Still pretty amazing. So let me paste this because this is this is a really, first of all, I'll make sure it's in my notes and I'll paste that into the list so you guys can get it. And now I lost my place. Yeah, boy, this Humble Bundle comes with tons and tons of stuff. And I have, uh, so in fairness, I have things that I wrote for this book too. Uh, I think in, certainly in the monster books, the 13th Age Bestiaries, I think I've got some 13th Age monsters that I wrote in these books. I think I'm credited in here. Oh my God, the amount of stuff that exists here. Yeah, 13th Age Bestiary, I wrote, I have, I have something in there. And I really love, I've, I've played a bunch of 13th Age. I've run multiple 13th Age campaigns sort of before 5th edition came out. And I adore, I adore this book. And, and the amount of stuff you get from this book is really worthwhile. GM Workshop says, honest question, is it worth it for someone who did a lot of two, three, four, five? Does it feel different? Yes, it does. 
it definitely feels different. It is not your straightforward traditional D20 game. It has lots of D20 principles, but it has some specific things that it does. And the biggest one for me, probably the number one thing where I'm like, oh, this is why I adore it, is that it uses abstract distances. And abstract distances are wired into the mechanics. They're wired into how you play. They're wired into the spells. They're, they're all the abstract stuff is, is, is built into the game. And that is uh, really great. Theater of the mind is its default. The cool thing is you can still use tokens. You can still use tokens. You can still use maps. You can still use Dwarven Forge. I did all of these because it just means you don't care about the squares. It just means that you have near and far as your, your distances, right? And you can say like, yeah, that guy's far away. That guy's near. And you're able to still use min miniatures and maps and tabletops and grids and everything like that if you want. But it means that the way the mechanics work are abstract and and that works really well it also has a really cool background system where you kind of decide what your you you sort of decide the three aspects of your i think this is right the three aspects of your backgrounds and, and that that define why you would be proficient with skills so you don't have a big long list of skills you instead have a background and you're and you're generated from background i talked about this last week i think where where professor dungeon master on the what's the what's his channel called dungeon craft talked about this idea of your characters are have background proficiencies or class proficiencies rather than skill proficiencies. 13th age has that kind of wired into it. And I really, and I really dig that. So I love it. And so, so I'm thinking like maybe there doesn't need to be a fifth edition version, but what I think would be cool is a 13th age version of the game that is compatible with fifth edition. But I kind of don't know why you even need that because really everything one of the things that's 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 amazing about 13th Age is that the core book for 13th Age has everything you need for the full RPG. It's got a really robust monster book. It's got a you know, monster section. It's got an adventure in it. It's got all sorts of class stuff in it. It's a really, really great, it's a beautiful, well-made book. Like I'm, I'm super happy with this book. So maybe my answer is you don't need a fifth edition version of 13th Age. There just is 13th Age and 13th Age runs really well on its own. I've run it from the book. I've had to do, there's, I think there's like two complaints that I have. If I'm going to poke at 13th age, this is, I guess is, I'm guess I'm making a review. Look at, look at me making a review for 13th age. The two things I'll poke at one is that at high levels, your the dice for your attack scale up and it gets pretty ridiculous to roll like eight D six damage on a die attack. It's easily fixed because you can essentially say, okay, you're going to roll 3d6 plus the average of 5d6. So, you know, you can, you can very easily convert a lot of the swinginess of the dice to a static number and give yourself plus that. That's what fourth edition did, right? Fourth edition said like, as you went up in levels, you might, you never rolled like more than four dice, right? And that prevented the 28d6 die rolls that you would have. Instead, it's like 4d6 plus 70, right? And you could do that with this instead of 8d6, you might roll 2d6 plus 7, 14, 20, 2d6 plus 28. No, that's not right. If I have 10d6, 2d6 plus 28 would be, you know, 4d6 plus 21, right? Would be as many dice. So you can convert your dice. You can convert your dice to a static number. So you're not rolling so many dice, but as written, it has you rolling tons of dice. And I remember I had a player who played a rogue and I had a player who played a rogue and he was like, it's just ridiculous how much dice you roll. Like he, his main attack would be some dice and his sneak attack was like 12 D eight. And he's like, I don't even have 12 D eight. I got to roll this over and over again. So, you know, it would churning it to static dice worked really well. The other, the other problem with it is that it's got this concept of icons 
and that each character has like an association with an icon, which is really neat, but it's really hard for that to kind of come out in play. And I never got a handle of like, because a character is tied to an icon, you have these icon roles and the icon role is supposed to kind of shape how the adventure goes. And I did a bunch of like monkeying around with saying like, we, we limited the icons that were connected from like 12 to six so that I wouldn't, I didn't have to try to figure out how all of the icons were involved in every adventure, right? So that that was another thing that I don't think ever, it was a neat idea that I don't think ever really manifested perfectly in the game itself. But these are relatively small problems for a game that I think back on. Like every time I hear somebody talk about how fourth edition was great, I'm like, man, go play 13th Age. You like 4E, you're gonna like 13th Age. But Matt Colville brought up a good point, which is he likes the grid and 13th Age doesn't have a grid. I'd argue you can still play on a grid, you just don't need to worry about the grid, right? If you want five foot resolution tactics, well, that's a different, you know, that's a different question. And me, I'm much happier with abstract distances. So that is 13th age. I think that is going to be the end of our show. Thank you all for coming today. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today while I chat about D&D. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy the show, there are four ways you can help me out. One, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Two, you can subscribe to me on YouTube to get new videos, get alerts about new videos. Three, you can support me directly on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Sly Flourish and signing up. And four, you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and the Lazy DMs Workbook. Thank you very much for, for, for watching and or listening today, and I will see you guys next week.